0: 103.9 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening where we are set to continue our exploration into the book of Exodus. We are moving along. Uh, we are in chapter 16 of the book of Exodus. Now, my dear friends, the background of God's provision in this chapter, manna from heaven, is to be found in the final verses of the previous chapter, right? Recall what we talked about last week. Not finding water for three days, the Israelites came upon the waters of Marah, which they were unable to drink because they were bitter. The people initially cried out to God and and then began to grumble. We're going to talk a lot about grumbling this evening. They began to grumble against Moses. They demanded to know what they were to drink. The Lord first made provision for the sweetening of the bitter waters of Marah, and then he spoke these words in verse 26 if you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord, the Lord your God, and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. So, as we noted last week, the bitter waters of Marah, and again, Marah means bitter, huh, were as useless to the Israelites as the bloody water of the Nile after the first plague was brought upon Egypt, huh? What's the point here? The Egyptians were plagued by God because they failed to heed the instruction of God to let his people go. When God's command to the Egyptians was disobeyed, the plagues ensued. Now God is laying down commands to his people the Israelites. If they disregard his commands, they will be plagued, just as the Egyptians were. So, the response of Israel to the bitter waters at Marah reveals that uh, the Israelites are sinful too, right? God's commands will be given to his people to test them, to instruct them. Uh, Now, while God's statement to Israel is a general command to them, the first of The commands and decrees which God refers to here are given to us in chapter 16. These commands are God's instructions regarding the gathering and use of the manna which He is about to provide for His people. And it is these commands which serve as a test for Israel's faith and obedience. Here at the beginning of Israel's journey from Egypt toward Canaan, the time spent in the wilderness is intended to again instruct an occasion for teaching Israel the necessity of faith and obedience. Let us turn our Bibles to chapter 16 and read, let's see here, verses 1 to, we'll take it down to 21 uh, for now. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the sons of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness and said to them, Would that he had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the flesh pots and ate bread to the full? For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your murmurings against the Lord. For what are we that you murmur against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening flesh to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your murmurings which you murmur against him, what are we? Your murmurings are not against us, but against the Lord. Whew, those are some strong words, huh? <laughs> Again, we'll talk about that. And Moses said to Aaron, "Say to the whole congregation of the sons of Israel. Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your murmurings. And Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the sons. And as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the sons of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the murmurings of the sons of Israel say to them, At twilight you shall eat flesh, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quails came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay round about the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as hoarfrost on the ground. When the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it. Every man of you, as much as he can eat, you shall take an omer apiece according to the number of the persons whom each of you has in his tent. And the sons of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, he had gathered much had nothing over. And he had gathered little had no lack. Each gathered according to what he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no man leave any of it till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and became foul. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. Okay, what could we say to these all-important verses? Well, What did we read? So, a month had passed between the time Israel departed from Egypt to the time when the nation reached the wilderness of sin. Water had already been a problem as we talked, huh? and now they had also run out of food. Their growling tummies soon produced grumbling lips. The whole assembly grumbled against Moses and Aaron. They said that they would rather have died in Egypt than to have been been brought out into the desert to starve to death. I mean, what kind of words are those? Uh, let us pause here and reflect into this murmuring we heard so much about in those first 21 verses of chapter 16. Brothers and sisters, what is true in the natural world is also true in other ways, bigger terms. I get it. When we are hungry, we have that singular focus to to have our stomachs filled. We have to be careful because it is far too easy to allow that grumbling for food to spill over into a into a grumbling about many other things. Maybe things that we think we need, but in the end, rather, only really want. And if we do have what we want, we are always complaining about that. We grumble about not having the car we need, no want, and then when we get it, We are constantly complaining about it. You see, my friends, in the grumbling, you have an absence of what? But that all-important virtue of gratitude, that virtue which says thank you. It is said that gratitude is memory of the heart, remembering that which has been done for you, huh? And it is. But it is also the, the homage of the heart. The, the homage of the heart that expresses itself in an act of thanksgiving. Uh, the term gratitude translates as, quite literally, a release of loveliness or a release of graciousness. Hmm? I've always loved that definition. In the virtue of gratitude, we recognize what someone has done for us and we in turn offer up an act of thanksgiving for that person to show gratitude. That's that homage of the heart, right? And this uh, act of thanksgiving is a release of loveliness. It is, it is a release of grace. It is a release of love. Hmm? Certainly in Judaism, the virtue of gratitude, the virtue of giving thanks had a central place in who they were. Here I am reminded of one Jewish legend. When God finished creation, He asked the angels what they thought of his creation. One of them replied that the world is so vast and and so perfect that the only thing that could possibly be owed to God is gratitude. I often think there is something most fascinating about the virtue of gratitude. It would appear to be the least costliest of all the virtues, huh? I mean, really, how much energy does it take to say thank you, right? And yet, we are more apt to grumble about the thorns on the rose and be grateful for its bloom and sweet fragrance. You see, this is the dichotomy, the juxtaposition between gratitude and the grumbling, the murmuring. So we have this problem of grumbling, and we counter it with the virtue of gratitude, saying thanks. But what about when you have to deal with pain, right? This is some of what is going on in the desert. Those hunger pains? That's an important question. I mean, grumbling almost never occurs when we are experiencing pleasure. You know, we don't experience pleasure and murmur about it. No, nearly always do we grumble when we are in pain. In our passage, my friends, there is a definite relationship between the Israelites' growling stomachs and their grumbling lips. We grumble because we, we do not like the pain or the discomfort of the situation we are in. We grumble because we think that we should experience pleasure, affluence and ease rather than adversity and deprivation. The Israelites grumbled against their leaders. they they grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The people, my friends, had forgotten that it was God who was leading them, right? Not only by Moses but what did we just read? Also by the cloud which was before them, that all-familiar Shekinah cloud that we read about in Exodus chapter 13 verses 21 to 22. Ultimately then, Israel's grumbling was a protest against God. Yeah, I, I get it. We grumble when we can't control our situation. We've all been there. I was there two days ago, right? When a gust of wind kicked up and took our basketball rim down and slammed into our van, I grumbled, right? I get it. What Moses wants us to see here in this text is that disobedience occurs when we have an option and we choose to do other than that which God has commanded, right? We are told in verse 2 that the whole community Oh, that's interesting. I might suggest to you here that the grumbling of a handful of people spread into an epidemic, an epidemic of grumbling, whereby one, two, five, ten ultimately affected the whole congregation. You see, grumbling is not only a malady of the mouth, it is a malady which is spread by the mouth. My dear friends, what you feed grows. No doubt this is what is going on here. And maybe, most importantly, grumbling is the result of a failure to trust God. It reveals a lack of faith that God is in control. For the person who grumbles, that individual does not see the good hand of God, refuses to accept any kind of adversity, and sees disaster rather than blessing as the outcome of of their circumstances. In fact, we can go farther and say that grumbling is allowing our present circumstances to nullify really our confidence in God's purposes and promises that we are all so familiar with. Now, in the text, God responds gently and graciously to the grumblings of the Israelites, does he not? rather than rebuke them for their complaining, he did two things, both of which were intended to demonstrate his presence with his people in their affliction and adversity. First, he revealed his glory to the Israelites by some special manifestation of himself in the cloud by which he had been leading them, right? Second, he provides for them practically, giving them quail and manna. Now a word about what the text says as it relates to the manna in the wilderness and the supposed needless rules and regulations of God's provision that we started to talk about, that I started to read. Now, God was not imposing needless rules and regulations on the Israelites. God's rules always have reasons, right? So the purpose of God's provision of manna and for his exacting rules regarding its collection and use, probably can be best understood in the light of the rest of the Bible. So, let us fast forward to Christ in the desert, and we will do so with Deuteronomy 8 in the background. So, Israel was led into the wilderness to be tested by God for 40 years. Now, this is what we read specifically in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. Our Lord was led by God into the wilderness to be tested including hunger for 40 days, as we read in Matthew 4, verses 1 to 2. Now, at the end of the 40-day period, Satan approached our Lord to tempt him. The first attempted temptation centered around what? But food, right? Since our Lord was hungry after his 40-day fast, it seemed only logical that he should eat, huh? (laughs) So Satan challenges him to prove his deity by satisfying his human need for food doing so by the exercise of his divine power. Now, what's interesting is how our Lord responds. Our Lord's answer was to refer Satan to Deuteronomy chapter 8, which was a theological reflection of incidents such as that recorded in Exodus chapter 16. The lesson drawn from Deuteronomy 8 was that one's physical needs are secondary to one's spiritual responsibilities, namely to be obedient to the will of God. Our Lord's hunger, like Israel's, was the will of God. To satisfy the physical need for for food and and at the same time to disobey God's will, quite simply, wrong. In point of fact, Jesus was saying that obedience to the will of God is more life-saving for a hungry man than is the eating of bread. The end point is this, obedience to the will of God, brothers and sisters, is the basis for survival and, of course, is of the highest priority. So as we provide for our physical needs, that which passes away, how all the more important to provide for our spiritual needs, that which doesn't pass away. Now, what does Jesus do with this in the New Testament? But like all things, he transforms it. He transforms this very specific truth into a greater and higher truth, that if we are going to obey and do the will of God, we need his body, his blood, his soul, his divinity streaming through our veins. If you have your Bibles out, turn to John chapter 6, huh? John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, the crowds had followed our Lord to a desolate place, a.k.a. a wilderness, as Mark would speak to it, where there was no food available. Our Lord gave them bread and fish to eat, just as God God had given the Israelites bread and quail to eat in the wilderness in Exodus 16. The response of the crowd was to look to the Lord Jesus. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. In response, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. Hmm. So he's calling for faith. He's calling for obedience. He's, He's calling for trust. Now if the parallel between Exodus 16 and, and John 6 isn't strong enough we find that <laughs> just as the Israelites grumbled in the context of the manna which God gave in Exodus 16 so too the Israelites grumbled about our Lord as the bread from heaven in John chapter 6 verse 41 we read at this the Jews began to grumble about him because he said i am the bread of life that came down from heaven. Uh, Let us go to John 6 and and read some of these verses huh? as we are making this comparison, this all-important comparison. The book of Exodus and the gospel of John are just replete with many, many parallels. We can spend month upon month examining these, but uh, as we're going through this book, I am trying to do my best to Upon some key parallels. All right, let's pick up chapter 6 and verse 30. Verse 30. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you. Oh, by the way, the Greek there for truly, truly is Amen, Amen. It's Pay close attention. You know, imagine a teacher of yours saying, truly, truly. What does that tell you? Well, what I'm about to say, pay close attention. So we read in verse 32, It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. My father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, "Lord." give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Right? There's that verse 36 we just read. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and him who comes to me I will not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Here you see the importance of obedience, huh? And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who sees the son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. How did the Jews respond to that? (laughs) You guessed it. The Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. They said to themselves, is not this Jesus the son of Joseph? whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not murmur among yourselves. Huh, does this language sound familiar? We pick it up in verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, there it is again, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that a man may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my, what, flesh. Again, verse 52, the Jews disputed among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They interpret our Lord's words as completely barbaric. So Jesus said to them, oh, I didn't mean that. No, the opposite. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Verse 54, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not such as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. So there he's saying, you want to talk about what happened in Exodus 16? Let me tell you something. What is before you is now just not greater, but the greatest. I, the Son of the living God. Verse 60, many of his disciples, when they heard it, said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples murmured at it, (laughs) said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit that gives life, the flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you that do not believe. For Jesus knew from the first who those were that did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples drew back and no longer went about with him. Wow, powerful stuff. If anyone out there were to question the actuality of what Jesus is saying here in this text, don't. Certainly, the Jews would not have been murmuring as they were, clamoring that this is barbaric imagery. How can he say he's going to give us his flesh to eat? Right. Clearly, this is what he was saying. Why did he institute the Eucharist? That indeed, he would become the new Lamb of God. And what have we already said about the importance of the Passover Lamb? If you do not eat it, chew it, you have no life in you. Incidentally, take note of what takes place in the Greek here. Up to verse 54, John employed the Greek estheo, which is the more common Greek for eating. In verse 54, he uses the term trogo, which literally means to chew or gnaw, specifically to chew or gnaw on animal stock, such as mules. Pigs, cattle, a uh, lamb. And let's take this one step further. In these uh, subsequent verses, 55, 56, 57, he uses he employs the plural form of trogo, trogon. This implies in the Greek, uh, perpetual consumption. Isn't that fascinating? Indeed, with the Eucharist, we have the eternal banquet. Uh, oh, by the way, the phrase "given thanks in John chapter 6 comes from the Greek "eucharisteros." The Eucharist is the spirituality of giving thanks. If we want to crowd out all of the grumbling that is in our hearts, we have to first receive the sacrament of gratitude. Huh? You see how we have come full circle? You see what... John wants us to see, and and moreover, (laughs) our Lord himself wants us to see that if we are going to overcome all of the grumbling that consumes our day and take stock on this point, mea look back on your day. How many things did you grumble about? I would venture to guess at least once. How do we overcome this? Go to the sacrament of the Eucharist receive the thanksgiving of God in the Eucharist. Amen? Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen? And God bless you.